Hello and welcome. Welcome. Uh, I'm Heather. I'm Laura. We're Sweet Sweet Death and we're here again. Sorry for the wait. Yeah. We had so much shit going on. <laughs> uh, you were going to say something. Um, yeah, I mean, I was just going to tell you the story because I went to that Brooks Nielsen show. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think I, that's what I was going to say, right? I do not know what music that is. He's the lead singer of the Growlers. Oh, he was. that's right. Yeah, so it's yes. like the uh, beach goth or something like that. I think that's how they define themselves. Anyways, he's like really weird to watch like perform. He's just so bizarre. But there was this point where it was like this really cute at the end of the show, like Asian couple. And they look like super foreign, like... And they were, like, coming to the front. They are like, we want him to sign our shirt or whatever, you know. And they mm-hmm. had, like, their little, like, shirt and Sharpie. And there was these girls. Okay, I went in Boulder, too. And let me just tell you, like, it was so fucking annoying being around all those, like, little college kids. Like, yeah. they were driving me fucking crazy. <laughs> and I just realized, like, wow, like, I'm way closer to 30 than 20. But anyways. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm standing there and there's these like annoying girls the whole time just like super fangirls look like i don't know like 19 or 20 or something like that and the people go up they hand him his shirt he signs it everyone's like oh like you know what i'm freaking out and they hand it back to them and one of the girls grabs the shirt and is like this is my shirt what the fuck yeah and then the people are like like so confused they're like the sweetest little people they're like she's like no this is my shirt i paid for it yeah and she's like this is my fucking shirt and dude her pupils were like pure fucking black oh, looked shit. like she was like high as fuck and like i'm not kidding you like everyone in the crowd started trying to like fight her she's like this crazy little skinny chick like yeah. i tell you like so tiny but she's like literally has her like whole body up in the air like legs like <laughs> kicking people like she was going fucking nuts it would not let go of the shirt and i was like what the fuck and i was like moving away i'm like okay yeah. i'm getting like away from here like i don't want to get thrown out and then um finally like someone else went and got security and then like whatever the people got their shirt back and everyone was like yay but like it was like the very last song and like it was still going on while it was like ending and then he like leaves off stage or whatever and everyone's like all fucking out of breath like holy shit like (laughs) it was like fucking hilarious i was like oh my god i was like she's like the villain of the fucking movie but then i really wanted a set list and so i was trying to get one but the guy wouldn't let me on stage and i was like can you just please grab it for me he's like no and then this other chick comes walking off the stage. I'm like, please grab me a set list. She's like, I'm like, there's one right there. And so she handed it to me. Nice. As she's handing it to me, someone's trying to rip it away from me. What the I'm fuck like, with these college kids, know. dude? I was like, I just asked for this. Like, what the fuck? Like, yeah. I folded it up and put it in my fucking pocket. And I was like, no one is stealing this from me. No like, kidding. Oh yeah, I just thought God. it was funny. I was like, what the fuck? And then, yeah, it's like really bizarre. But yeah, I just wanted to tell you that because I thought it was funny. And, yeah. Yeah. Oh. I'm way closer to 40 than 30. Yeah. So. <laughs> it's definitely crazy i guess it doesn't feel like i'm like getting old but 30s are coming listen i'm almost 40 i got a foot in the grave laura it doesn't feel like you are (laughs) i might as well be dead so um but yeah i got in a fight with my parents over a a picture of dave grohl as jesus on facebook oh my god yeah like on facebook you were fighting or they called no like they called me on the phone like they texted me and said hey do you have a minute to talk and i was at work and i was like no i don't i have no idea what this is about (laughs) i'm innocent in all this all i did was change my profile picture to dave grohl jesus of which i thought was hilarious and he is my lord and savior (laughs) he's done more for people than jesus did true so amen amen (laughs) That's right. 
Are you afraid your parents like, are listening? No, no, not really. Uh, I don't fucking care anymore. <laughs> okay. But, uh, well, I'm like, I'm super atheist. They don't know I'm yeah. atheist. So I'm going to turn my fucking volumes down. But um, anyway, so my dad calls. And it's only been up for like two days, dude. Yeah. Two fucking days. And he's like, so you, uh, the first things he says, it's like, so you changed your uh, profile picture on Facebook. And I literally said, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> like, I was so angry. I already knew. Yeah. I'm already, like, riled up. The second he says that, I'm like, oh, you've, this is fucking yeah, bullshit. This is what you called about. <laughs> I'm 38 years old. Yeah. You called a grown woman a thousand miles away. Because you saw a picture on the internet that you did not like. But it wasn't my dad. He's like, your mother's been in tears. And this is a <laughs> slap in the face of Christianity. I was like, oh what the fuck in is tears. going on? <laughs> it's Dave Grohl as Jesus. That's so funny. And I was like, it was just a funny picture. And he's like, would you do that to Muhammad? And I was like, <laughs> what? I probably. I don't give a shit. So... Anyway, that was a few weeks ago, oh and God. we have not spoken oh. since. I'm so fucking pissed. Did you change it, or did you leave I it? I did. Oh, my God. To Snow White holding a grenade. So <laughs> I hope that's better. That's so funny. I hope oh the God. violent imagery is somehow better than Day of Grohl as Jesus. That's crazy. I forget that it can be so offensive to, like... Dude, like, even just the oh minorest <laughs> little snowflake fucking thing. Jesus Christ. So okay. Funny. Your mother was in tears. Was, and you know what? I believe yeah. that. I think she was in tears. Wow, that's funny. Over the dumbest things. I think the other thing that set her off was, like, this is de a decade ago. I said that I believed in evolution, and that just really upset the shit out of my parents. So, your poor little mom. I, it's my poor parents. <laughs> I did say though. I did say, I'm sorry that you live in a bubble and a Facebook profile picture bursts it. Like I just could yeah. not believe that that like, was a it's fight, like a joke. But this kind of shit has happened before. Yeah. It's happened all throughout my life. It's. Uh, okay so yeah, anyways that would frustrate me too oh, yeah God. um anyway so we both have an insanely yeah. long story to tell yeah i feel like your battery has four percent left okay. so you I, should okay you should go <laughs> all right um yeah i guess i feel so weird like i haven't recorded in forever so. it's been three long years now. all right <laughs> Well, today I'm going to be talking about the, they're technically unsolved, even though they arrested that guy for them, but the Atlanta child murders, because he was only arrested for two of them. But if you haven't heard of them, it was um, a series of unsolved murders of both children and young adults in Atlanta, Georgia, that occurred between 1979 and 1981. The victims were primarily African American, and they ranged in age from 7 to 28. Most were from low-income families and were male. Um, over the two-year period, there were a total of 28 murders, and many of the victims were strangled. So this was also the case that was in Mindhunter. I think it was the second season, right, with that weird yeah. like music guy. Yes. Um, I barely remember it, but as I was doing this, I was remembering more of it, and I was like, oh. Like, Did you rewatch it? No, I thought about it, but I was so like, uh, I, I should. They canceled it, didn't they? They did. It's done. It's dead. So sad. Okay. Anyway, so the first body to be connected to these murders was that of Alfred Evans. Alfred had been reported missing by his mother, with whom he lived in the Thomasville Heights housing projects at the time. He was just 14 years old, and he had been found three days later, shirtless and barefoot in a vacant lot, on July 28, 1979. 
Um, so a man was picking up cans along Niski Lake Road in Georgia, and he came along the rotting body of the young boy, and he immediately called police. It had been so hot, the body was severely decomposed, like just in those three days. And when the police arrived, they began to examine the crime scene, where they then found a second body less than, I think it was like 150 feet away, um, in the surrounding woods. Sorry. Okay, mm-hmm. so, and I guess they found it just because they could smell it. Like, they were like oh, something. No. Yeah. So the second boy was Edward Hope Smith, and he was just 14 years old, and he had succumbed to a gunshot wound to the chest. So, yeah, the first boy was strangled. He was shot in the chest, but they were so close together. They're like, this has to be connected. Um, And what is crazy is that Alfred's mother, that first boy who had been found, came to identify him, and she refused to believe that it was her son, especially because I guess he was wearing clothes she'd never seen before. And so, sadly, his body was left unclaimed, like, for a year. So, he's just a John Doe for a year in the morgue um, until a detective matched his dental records to his body. And then they're like, yeah, it was him. Um, So, obviously, this is just 10 years after, like, civil rights era and the tensions were still high. Um, All of the racist, like, white fucking people didn't just disappear. So, um, Georgia, I think, also had a higher black population than most states in general. And this year specifically, they had a high homicide rate, just like higher than normal. Mm-hmm. So the Niski Lake Road murders were written off as a drug like related thing, like whatever. Yeah. You know, these, you know, as always. So um, for a long time, the people of Atlanta wouldn't even know they had a problem with like the black youth being murdered, like literally almost like I think a year because it wasn't reported by the media. And yeah, it was like, kind of crazy. So yeah. um. Just a few months later, 14-year-old Milton Harvey was reported missing after last being seen riding his yellow bike near a bank, taking a $100 check to pay a credit credit card bill for his mom. Um, He had stayed home from school because his mother had bought him the wrong shoes, and she was going to buy him another pair, which Mm. I feel like stuff like that always just freaks me out. It's like those one little, like... Yeah, that tiny little detail. Okay, and then, yeah, he would never be seen alive again. Atlanta's missing persons unit at the time was so small they didn't have resources to help find the boy, and he was considered a minority, which means he was the last priority, and they just deemed him a runaway. Um, His body was found by a garbage dump missing his knee-length striped socks and shoes. Um, Soon after this, nine-year-old Yusuf Bell, who attended Dunbar Middle School, was last seen getting into a blue car. Um, And witness, I guess... It was, like, some lady who was apparently an alcoholic or something that his mother claimed was, like, a psycho. She didn't believe that he really got into this blue car. But um, there's, like, other cases where this blue car will be involved. But um, she was just really devastated about what happened to her son. And she wasn't able to get help from the police. And just like Milton Harvey, um, they wrote his, like, case off. Um, And I guess his mother was also quoted saying that basically you have to be like somebody's child in order to like be important and get help from the police. And so it's kind of sad. Yeah. All right. And so a few weeks after he had disappeared, just four blocks from where he had been living, Yusuf was found by 30 year old John Henry Ty, a janitor at an elementary school. John found the decomposed or decomposing body of the young boy in brown shorts who had previously or had obviously been hit over the head in the crawl space of the school while he was looking for a place to pee. So police would positively ID this decomposing body to be that of Yusuf Bell. Um, His death hit the community especially hard, and a neighbor was quoted saying that the whole neighborhood cried because they loved that child. Mm. And Yusuf's mother, Camille, would eventually become an 
advocate for the missing children and she made it her mission to create change and created the committee to stop children's murders which ended up actually getting like a little bit of um like attention from the police but not much yeah uh, okay so the victim's families began to suspect that the crimes could be related but atlanta police had yet to link any of the crimes on march 4th 1980 a few months later a 12 year old girl named Angel Lanier was discovered in the woods three blocks from her apartment, tied to a tree with bruises and ligature burns covering her body or body. And she had died of strangulation and she would be the fifth child to be found murdered in Atlanta. Um, she had been heading home from school that day and unfortunately just never made it home. Uh, seven days after Angel had been found, an 11 year old boy by the name of Jeffrey Mathis was reported missing after last being seen getting into a blue car at a star service station, just like Yusuf Bell. He had gone to the store to get a loaf of bread and just the day before had been watching the news with his mother, Willie May. And she had remembered telling him not to talk to strangers. And he was like, Mama, I don't do that. I don't talk to strangers. And then sadly, his body was found in a wooded area, just like all of the other children to die before him like literally the day after that i guess it's horrible that is crush yeah um there's obviously someone terrorizing and preying upon the black youth in atlanta and the communities were living in fear because of it and not to mention they had no help from the police which comes as no surprise um the circumstances of all the deaths seem to be quite different ranging from strangulation stabbings gunshot wounds and then the bludgeoning um jeffrey mathis's or mathis's death was left undetermined and then, as I mentioned earlier, Yusuf's mother, Camille, had started that committee. So that committee um, ended up making, like, the city basically take notice. And then they increased the size of the task force and then the total reward money for the tips that were um, given to help the investigation. Okay. All right. The community, also, the community also ended up starting a sort of neighborhood watch type thing where they really started to prioritize meeting their neighbors. And there was even this one quote that I thought was funny, but it was like something like, yeah, tell those busybodies to get back into everyone's business or something like that. And it's like, okay. Right. Um, a boy named Eric Middlebrook just a few months later would last be um, seen riding his bike on May 18th. Earlier that day, he had left his house house with a hammer in hopes of fixing his bike and then he was never seen alive again um a day later his body was found near the rear garage of the hope you like it bar by some dumpsters his pockets had been turned inside out and his chest and arms had slight stab wounds and his cause of death was blunt force trauma to the head one officer on scene named bob buffington noticed this like red fabric on the bottom of eric's shoes and there are actually photos online of this too there's like this horrible site i mean i guess it was good but it had like all the crime scene photos and it was really disturbing actually Whoa. like their bodies and stuff is freaking me out you I saw was, like everything it was like them like laying out like dead and stuff. yeah it was like horrible i was like oh my gosh this is like weird anyways yeah. um there was one and i could see his shoes and it had like the red fibers on it but um yeah so he took the um fibers to his superiors or photos whatever and they mocked him and told him basically like yeah we don't give a fuck about testing the fabric and i guess sorry i'm getting ahead of myself okay no, that's okay yeah so and then i had also read sadly that i guess eric had like a fucked up home life and he had been given up by his biological mom when he was four and apparently oh. she didn't even like attend his funeral which what the yeah fuck? which i thought was just so sad i just needed to throw that in there because yeah. you know i'm depressing but anyways um no, fuck shitty people yeah <laughs> Despite his horrible, horrific death, um, Eric's murder would motivate both Bob, that guy who found the fibers, and another police officer named Danny Akin to write 
to their superiors to urge them to please look at the murders and connect them. And sadly, his major said, in quote, you like to work homicide? And he was like, yes, sir, I do. And he's like, well, how about you like to work uh, or how would you like to work auto theft in the mornings or something like that? And it was mm-hmm. basically just like, if I see like another letter like this, like you're going to be taken off homicide and working like yeah. some petty theft, theft shit. So he just like felt super discouraged from that and was like, okay. Um, so then sadly the bodies of young black children would continue to pile up, I guess, so to speak. I don't know why I use that, but <laughs> phrase. Well. I feel like it's kind of bad, but, um, uh, Christopher Richards, Richardson would be the next boy and eighth victim to be taken on June 9th of 1980. Christopher, unlike the other children was taken from his own front yard. His body was found in a wooded area and much like the bodies of Alfred and Edward, Christopher was found with another boy. 70 feet north of Redwine by a resident's dog. And I guess the resident had come to a po- come to the police who were already conducting another search party. And he was like, hey, my dog smells, like, really bad. Like, he thought he had, like, rolled around in a body Ugh. or something like that. And he did. That's horrible. I know. And so each body was missing some clothes, I guess. Um, in Atlanta, investigators accidentally left body parts at the scene, including teeth. Whoa. Yeah. Um, so both of the boys' cause of death were undetermined. Ten-year-old Terrell had last been seen earlier that year, sitting outside of South Bend Park Pool, and after being kicked out by the lifeguard, their um, witness reported seeing him, like, on the corner of near his house crying, and then he went oh. to, like, the grocery store to buy some popsicles, and I don't know, it just broke my heart. I was like, this yeah. poor little dude had a real rough last day. Um, so the next victim would be seven-year-old Latone. Latonya Wilson. She was apparently taken from her second story window, like bedroom window, by two men. Um, a woman named Gladys Durden saw a man climb into the window of her house four times. Apparently, he would have had to climb over her brother's bed, past her parents' room, all four of these times that he was going in and out, mm-hmm. which so bizarre. Um, he left the he left through the back door and left it like open, I guess. And then the same woman witnessed him talking to another black male in the parking lot with the girl in his arms. Nathaniel Cater, um, I guess, was someone who lived upstairs from her apartment and was was suspected to be one of the men speaking to the other guy in the parking lot, but it was never confirmed. Mm -hmm. And then later that year, during a search um, party that had been organized by the city, her skeletal remains would be found in the woods. Yeah, so um, on June 23rd, 1980, just a day after she had been abducted, much like the other victims, a boy named Eric Wish was seen getting into a blue car after leaving the grocery store. Apparently, witness witnesses described a vehicle that fit the exact description of the vehicle that had picked up the Jeffrey Mathis kid. In addition to this, the license plate number was registered to a different car with different plates or something like that on the same street in front of the house where that Jeffrey kid's family had, like, reportedly looked for him or something like that. I don't know. It's really confusing and weird. But, yeah. yeah. Okay. So, Aaron was just 10 years old, and his body was found under a bridge the day after his disappearance, and his cause of death was also strangulation. Um, July 6th, just a week or so later, a boy named Anthony would vanish during game of hide-and-go-seek. His body would be found near a warehouse, stabbed multiple times. So, so far we have 11 kids who have been brutally murdered in less than a year across Atlanta. And like I said earlier, the media had not begun to, like, publicize these murders until now. And it wasn't even really, like, them really putting it out there. It was just people were, like, starting to notice, like, hey, there might be a serial killer, like, 
killing these kids yeah kind of a thing. the public came to it faster yeah, than the cops did literally i'm like wow it's so crazy okay sorry this is so depressing i'm like dang okay it's okay man <laughs> So a task force was finally formed, but it was little help, and there would soon be another boy taken, 13-year-old Clifford Jones. Um, he would go missing after going to the store on August 20th with his aunt, who went to go and get stuff to make a birthday cake. And within 15 minutes, um, she'd come back outside, unable to find Clifford, because I guess he didn't want to go inside with her or something like that. Um, his body was found that same night, strangled to death near a dumpster. Apparently, Clifford helped push authorities to become more serious since... He wasn't actually from Atlanta. He was, like, visiting from mm. Cleveland or something. So it was like, oh, this, like, I don't know. It was, like, in the media, like, this boy from out of town, whatever, yeah. tourist. So it got, like, a little bit of attention. Um, on September 14th, 1980, a boy named Darren Glass would be seen getting off the bus in a yellow shirt, but never found. His body is still missing. He was the 14th victim. The next victim was 10-year-old Charles Stevens, who was last seen at home on October 10th, where he was watching TV and drawing. He was reportedly going to visit a friend or his cousin in, um, Carver Homes. I think it's like a neighborhood. Yeah. Um, Jerome Clark claimed he saw Stevens playing on his skateboard near a dumpster in front of his house. Another witness said he saw a man who didn't respond to him. Like, I guess he tried to call out to him or something and he just like ignored him near him or in the vicinity of the boy. And then his body would be found strangled and left in some tall brush on a grassy hill near the, near the entrance to the Longview trailer park. He was missing his t-shirt and one of his sister's shoes and he was wearing dark blue pants. Rub marks were found on his nose and mouth, and dog hairs and two Caucasian head hairs were found on the bar body. And the oh. two pubic hairs not belonging to him were found on his boxers 950 feet away. Damn. Yeah. Um, on November 1st, a nine-year-old named Aaron Jackson disappeared outside of a shopping center. His body was found off of Forest Park Road on the southeast bank of the South River beside the bridge... He was missing his socks. He was wearing blue jeans, a white shirt with brown designs, and black tennis shoes. Um, the listed cause of death was also asphyxiation. Like, yeah, I don't know if you noticed, but, like, all of these kids are, like, basically missing their socks. I don't know if it was, like, yeah. some weird thing, but oh, it I thought it was kind of, yeah, I, think, I thought it was kind of weird. Um, but, yeah, so at this point, 16 kids had been found murdered in Atlanta, and the community was freaking out. Um, I had seen, there's this documentary on Netflix about it, and the mayor there, or the mayor at least she was in 2019, I don't know if she still is, um, mm -hmm. Keisha Lance Bottoms um, stated that, like, being a child during that time was terrifying. She was only nine at the time, and she's, like, kind of recalling, like, yeah, it was yeah. crazy. Like, um, And she also actually ended up having the case, like, reopened during in like 2019 but anyways i'll talk about that later yeah. uh so law enforcement was um still not acting and so parents were afraid to let their kids even leave the house local citizens were arming themselves with guns and bats and patrolling the neighborhoods um others volunteered to join a citywide search in hopes of finding clues so it was just like crazy scary times for everyone and i feel like it's even sadder it's like it literally was like not helping even yeah so finally a few months after that um georgia or Georgia officials requested that the FBI join the investigation. Um, five of the nation's top homicide detectives were brought in as consultants, and two U.S. Justice Department officials were also dispatched to the city to provide support. Um, it's been like a year later at this point, and on November 10th, just four days after the FBI's involvement, a 16-year-old named Patrick Rogers disappeared. 
Now this is where I'm sure you might start remembering stuff from like Mindhunter, but apparently Patrick loved performing, he loved music, and he had come in contact with this man who offered to be his manager, I guess. Mm -hmm. And on the day he disappeared, he had told his friends and family that he was going to the recording studio to meet this man, but he would never come back home. Uh, Sadly, his little brother Isaac, who was just seven at the time, said he was watching the news and that it like came on. They had announced they had found a body in um the Chattahoochee River and then they kept doing he said like almost a thing where it's like oh like they show like flashes of like the crime scene and kind of cut and like tease like they wanted him to keep watching it and then eventually it cut to a commercial he said that the phone rang and that it was his mom like freaking out she's like that's him that's him like it's gonna be Pat and then he said that it like came back on the news and then he actually saw his brother's like body being pulled from the river Oh, and he's like seven at the time and he's just thinking like no that can't be my brother like he was a martial arts expert which is like so sad yeah but then later that night the police ended up coming to their home to inform them that the body pulled from the river was indeed um his brother and that he had died from blunt force trauma so terrible uh, yeah so then A day after the death of his brother, him and his friends, so this Isaac kid and his friends, went to this lady named Willie May's house. And I guess she's just, like, one of those nice little grannies who, like, give you candy and and shit like Mm -hmm. that, you know, and treats. So they go to her house. He said he, like, got candy and stuff and that they're leaving. And I think it was, like, an apartment building or something. So he's, like, walking down these stairs. And he said that he saw this really creepy guy walking up the stairs he said like as soon as he saw him he knew like i need to get away from this guy or he's gonna fucking murder me so he said he turned around and started running up the stairs and the guy was like basically running up the stairs following him so he goes back to the sweet little granny's house and he's like knocking on the door and she answers the door he runs in and the dude is like standing at the door like staring at them both and he said it was like really creepy and he said he'd never forget that like he was positive that this was the man who like took his brother's life yeah no kidding that's like like, that is a the worst nightmare for a kid i was like oh my gosh i was like that is terrifying creepy as fuck like what the fuck anyways um on january 13th a 13 year old named luby geeter was um last seen at stewart lakewood shopping center on the g a six i don't know what the fuck that is selling zep gel which was basically just like car deodorizers and um he had been left there by his brother. He just wanted to make some extra cash, I guess. I don't know how much cash you can really make from that. But um, apparently he was seen getting into a red pickup and then a white pickup and then a white and black cutlass. And then a woman later testified that she saw him getting into a car with Wayne Williams, who is eventually the man who's convicted for all of these like murders, um, in front of Sears at the mall. A month later, they would find his body in a wooded area with most of his clothes missing. And of course, he died from asphyxiation. So, during the same month, on January 22nd, Terry Pugh, just 15 years old, would also disappear. Apparently, he was friends with Luby, the previous victim, and then he had lived in the same apartment building as the second victim, Edward Hope. So, kind of weird. They're all a little bit connected. Mm-hmm. Um, he was seen playing basketball shortly before his disappearance. And then this one's really weird because an anonymous person would then call the police and they like told him where to find or tell them where to find Terry's body. And then they went to that location and they did find his body like the day after on January 23rd. Mm. So February 6th, Patrick Baltazar is last seen playing at what is basically like a huge strip mall. I think it was called like Omni or something like that. It had like a skating rink an arcade, like places you could eat. Um, 
So he went there to like play, I guess, and then his body would be found a week later on February 13th along the interstate and corporate square between I-85 and Buford Highway. Um, he was hidden in like brush and he was behind like an apartment complex or something like that, I guess, in the area. I don't really know how they, they described it kind of weird. They should photos though. So yeah. anyways, um, he had died much like the other victims from asphyxiation and he would be the 20th victim. On February 19th, 13-year-old Curtis Walker was last seen near a gun shop looking for work because I guess him and his brother would go there to pick up trash. And I guess that day his mother actually asked him, like, please don't leave the house, just stay home. But he left anyways, and then he would never be seen again. He was found in just his underwear a few weeks later and had died from asphyxiation. On March 2nd, 1981, a few weeks after that, 15-year-old Joseph Bell went missing, and he was found in the Chattahoochee River where the other two victims had been found. Um, and then the next victim, 13-year-old Timothy Hill, would go missing on March 13th from his own backyard, and he was found in the same river. Um, at this point, law enforcement come across, like, a lead, and it was that red fabric that was originally blown off. And um, investigators began to notice more of this brightly covered fiber along along with, like, dog hair on the victims' bodies. And I guess the fibers were, like, green, violet... And I think some other color, and, and then red, I think, yeah. Um, sorry. Oh, <laughs> and then okay. the local newspaper, I guess, ended up, like, getting hold of this information somehow. And they posted it in the paper. And then after that, like, the dude who was killing all these kids started throwing the bodies in the rivers, like, constantly. Because they think he was, like, trying to get the fibers to come off the bodies. I don't fucking know. Um, and then this is when it seems like he also changes his victimology, which... I guess isn't like usual for a killer like if they like killing kids will usually like stay killing kids but he suddenly starts to kill adults hmm. which is like really weird and some people don't believe it was even him like the same killer but um the next victim would wash up on the river and only his boxers and it was 21 year old eddie duncan and he'd be the 24th victim uh victim 25 was larry rogers he was actually mentally challenged and last seen getting into the car with a light-skinned man and this was the same um, for that Eddie Duncan kid. Like, I guess he had also been seen getting into the car with a light-skinned man. Mm. Um, anyways, Larry was found on April 9th in an abandoned apartment complex. On April 1st, 23-year-old Michael McIntosh was headed towards the bus station near the Chattahoochee River, and then he disappeared. He was found naked on the side of the river. So at this point, like, everyone's afraid. Like, adults are afraid they're going to get freaking taken they're afraid their kids are going to take in. Everyone's just, like, kind of, like, in a panic in Atlanta. Yeah, like, um, you're kind of just waiting to see yeah, what comes on the news next. It's like, dude, we don't know. Yeah, it's just, like, free game, mm -hmm. I guess. So, on April 22nd, 21-year-old Jimmy Payne um, headed to the Omni, that crazy arcade place I told you about. Um, he was going to sell some coins, I guess. Um, he was supposed to meet his girlfriend, but I guess he never showed up. So, then they're, like... Where is he? Reported him missing. And much like everyone else, he was found mostly naked, strangled um, near the Chattahoochee River by some fishermen. Uh, his body had those same green and violet fibers that had been on the other victims. Um, on May 11th, 17-year-old William Barrett was last seen at the McDaniel Glen Housing Community Center paying a bill for his mother. And this also happened to be the community center where, community center where um, Patrick Rogers danced, that little boy whose brother called him, like, the martial arts expert. Uh, so it was, like, that same kid. And a neighbor reportedly saw him later, a few blocks from his home in the Kirkwood East Lake area along Memorial, getting into a two 
door white car with a black man carrying a purse. Um, his body would be found in a wooded area asphyxiated. So at this point, the FBI had made a profile and they stated that basically the killer would be a black man who was single, interested in the media surrounding the murders and living with his parents. And then this is also when they decide, like, we need to set up, set up surveillance around um, the Chattahoochee River, just like they do in Mindhunter. I don't mm-hmm. know if you remember. I don't know if in the show they show it like this, but I feel like I only remember one bridge in the show. But there's 14 bridges, I guess, along the Chattahoochee mm-hmm. River. So they had to set up officers at each bridge and some even um, below the bridge by the water. And I guess they worked 140 officers every night for weeks. Uh, just to try and catch this guy and it literally was like doing nothing so they decided like we're gonna fucking end this and on that very last week of the bridge surveillance on may 22nd 1981 um officers were sitting listening monitoring the south bridge when they suddenly heard splashing sounds the officer then saw a station wagon pass overhead on south cobb drive bridge and they would stop the driver and it just so happens to be a blue station wagon And the driver was a 23-year-old man named Wayne Williams. They ask him, do you know why I pulled you over? And he's like, uh, yeah, it probably has something to do with those missing kids. Mm. And then they're like, why are you out so early? And he's like, oh, I'm a talent scout. I have a meeting with a woman named Cheryl Johnson at 7 a.m. And the officers don't believe his story because it's 3 fucking a.m. And you're meeting her at 7 a.m. And then I guess in addition to this, they never even found some lady named Cheryl Johnson, like... He just made the shit up. And then they found nylon ropes in his car along with suede gloves on the seat. But it still wasn't enough to arrest him. They, like, held him and they searched for a body in the river for an hour. But they didn't find anything, so they had to let him go. And then just two days later, the body of 27-year-old Nathaniel Carter would be discovered downstream. He was naked. His cause of death was asphyxiation. And he also had those green and violet fibers on his body. And this would be the final victim. Um, And eerily enough, the body wasn't far from where the 20-year-old Jimmy Ray had been found just a month earlier. So Wayne Williams fit the profile perfectly. As mentioned, he drove the blue vehicle, which was mentioned in the other case. He had, like, a weird interest, I guess, in taking pictures of crime scenes. Like, he had a police scanner, and I guess all the police knew him, too, because he'd be, like, the first one to show up at a crime scene and take photos. Wow. So they, like, knew him. And then after news got out about Wayne, other people started to recognize him. And... Even, like, made claims, like, oh, yeah, like, he'd come up to me and told me he, like, could get me into, like, rec- I don't even know, like, get famous for, like, being, like, a singer or some shit like yeah. that. I don't know. he Which he didn't have any contracts with rec- recording studios. Like, he's just a fucking weirdo. Yeah. Um, And then, I guess, Isaac, the little boy of the Patrick kid, said that when he saw Wayne, that he knew for sure that it was the man that had chased him up the stairs and that he felt, like, a little bit of relief, like, oh, like, they finally got him because he Mm -hmm. knew it was him. Um, They found weird photos. Just like I said, he liked taking photos of crime scenes. He also liked taking photos of young boys. And then they found, like, tons of photos of young boys, but they also found a bunch of burned photos in the backyard. And I guess that night that he had got arrested and they had to let him go, he, like, went home and his neighbor said that he saw him, like, burning a ton of shit in the backyard. So, who knows? Like, he might have taken, like, photos of these kids he killed. Like, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, So, the carpet in his house was green, like, the green fibers. His bedspread was, like, a violet color. And then, last but not least, there was a German shepherd in the backyard. So fibers were taken from the house, the bed, the carpet, and they were exact matches to the ones found at the crime scenes. And his conviction for those two murders 
was based solely on like these fibers. Mm-hmm. So on June 21st, 1981, he would be arrested for the murders of Nathaniel Cater and Jimmy Payne because of the fibers found on their bodies. There wasn't enough evidence c- to connect him with um, any of the other murders, but the prosecution believed that he was responsible for at least 10 other children. And then apparently German shepherd dog hairs were found on 18 of the murder victims. Green fibers were found on 15 and violet fibers were found on 21 of them. Whoa. Yeah. So one of Wayne's friends apparently testified that he had directly said like to her that he hated black street kids. And if one of them tested him, he would knock them out by applying pressure to their necks. So. Whoa. Yeah. Uh, Wayne Williams was found guilty of the murders and sentenced to two life terms that he's still serving to this day. Most people believe he wasn't the person responsible for the murders, but police were set on putting an end to the Atlanta child killer case. What's even crazier is 13 of the victim's families think he is innocent and called him the 30th victim. But since Wayne Williams' arrest, there have been no more related killings. So Mm -hmm. I don't know if he, like, if there was an actual killer, if he just stopped. But I don't know. It's kind of weird that they suddenly stopped once he stopped or got arrested, you know. Um, And then... There are some who remain, um, I don't know, they believe, it's crazy, this whole, like, thing. They believe that, like, the KKK was behind it, or, like, a pedophile ring. Mm. But there was, like, all this stuff with um, a KKK member named Charles Theodore Sanders, who, I guess, had previously admitted to, I think it was um, another cop or something who had been working the case. He was um, an informant. And he had, I guess, confessed to him that that Luby uh, Gator kid, who was one of the victims that apparently Wayne killed, um, I guess, like, he had ran to his car with a go-kart or something like that. And he confessed to this guy that he, like, strangled the kid, like, killed that son of a bitch or something like that. So some people were, like, really convinced that it was, like, the Sanders brother behind... Sanders brothers behind these murders. And then... um, I guess there was like an investigation from Spin Magazine that said they found that the Sanders, the white supremacist family members, planned to kill more than two dozen black children to incite a race war in Atlanta. But Mm. people from the primary investigation are like, no, like it was this fucking Wayne Williams guy. And to this day, like he remains in prison and he maintains his innocence, but he's tried to get parole and still denied so i don't know but then there was like a weird interview with him in 1991 where he said that he had even befriended some of the brothers of the victims and he also said that he'd been in touch with some of the victims mothers and said like oh i truly hope they find who killed their children because he's just like that innocent or whatever Mm -hmm. yeah and then like i said earlier that lady who's the mayor of atlanta also believes that Wayne was, like, innocent or that the evidence wasn't tested correctly. And so she reopened the case. And they were supposed to test the evidence, I guess, in, like, 2021. And Mm -hmm. then they did, like, all this DNA testing. And then they were like, oh, we'll release it in 60 days. And then they didn't release it. And then, like, the families, I guess, were urging in the end of 2022 to release it. And they still haven't released it. So we don't even know, like, what. Yeah. That's That's so weird. Yeah. But yeah, it's just like pretty weird. And so it's still kind of just like maybe it was something enough like 
it was too compromising yeah. to release to the public. That's what I was thinking. I was like, it's kind of weird. So I don't know. Why would you put, why would you announce that like that? Like we're going to, in 60 days. I know. Like what? Don't even say that. Yeah. Say if it's important, we'll let you know. Yeah. Because so, they had said that and then they're like, oh, sorry, like we lost funding or something like that. And then people are like, this is fucking bullshit. Like you said this. And yeah, I don't know. It was literally crazy, dude, that. There's so much stuff about the Sanders brothers and stuff, too. I, like, really condensed it because I was like, I just can't even yeah. this because it seems kind of, like, I don't know, far-fetched. I'm like, this dude, like, I don't know, all the fibers and shit. I'm like... I mean, not that, like, it couldn't happen, <sighs> yeah. but um, I don't know. Like, the... In Mindhunter, again, I know it's television. Yeah. But watching that one white guy try to operate around a very densely populated black yeah. city, like, was very obvious. Yeah. I... I don't know. I don't That's see I white dudes just roaming around like they're not going to get noticed. Like, yeah. hey, well, we saw some skinheads come through here the other day. Like, yeah. I don't know. Because I think yeah. the prosecution, they believed like, okay, he's like homosexual. He had like a thing against like black males like some resentment mm -hmm. and that's why he was like targeting them and yeah, I don't know. I mean, yeah, it, hey, maybe it's a good thing that they reopened it. Maybe we'll all learn something new. Yeah, I and, know. I mean, and that would be crazy if the DNA was something else. Like, right. We'd but, have to revisit it. Yeah. I mean, he still killed those two kids. Like, so. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. <sighs> well. Sorry. No, it's like okay. okay. We're, we're still okay on time. We're okay. still okay on time. So, I, uh, I did mine on the removal of black residents of Forsyth, Georgia. So... I'm telling you, it's pretty crazy shit. All right. uh, so, Forsyth, Georgia. It's a bit problematic. In 1987, the country watched one of the most racist demonstrations in the last several decades take place during the 75th anniversary peaceful protest march when all the white residents removed their black neighbors by force um, back in 1912. During the peaceful protest, a bunch of Confederate-toting, racist, white pieces of shit showed up with their mullets and dumpy pickup trucks. Uh, there they screamed, N-words go home, keep Forsyth white, so on and so forth, big banners. I mean, it was oh, crazy. Um, and then, do you want to know who had the guts to go and confront all of these cousin fuckers? It was Oprah motherfucking Winfrey. What? In 1987. What? After her show had been on for only <laughs> five months, dude. Wow. It is 80s Oprah, dude. Wow. It's awesome. Oh, fucking Robbie. Uh, but she took on one of the most racist counties in the country. So please go look up YouTube. Find Oprah trying to navigate these <laughs> crazy turds heavily breathing their way through their thoughts on the difference between an N-word and a black person. Oh, my gosh. And this jaunty fellow was wearing straight up like a denim suit. It's fucking ridiculous, <laughs> dude. Wow, that's crazy fucking Oprah. Yeah, dude, <laughs> Oprah. So, and I think she said she considered it like one of the greatest moments of Aww. her on her show. Oh my gosh, I would too. Like to, to go and confront <laughs> these people—that yeah. is scary. So, Oprah is not the hero that we deserve. But I mean, it's who we have. <laughs> Wait, did I say that right? We she don't is... deserve her. Oh, okay. We do yes. not deserve Oprah. That's so funny. But we have her. That could have been said better. That reminds me of Broad City. Abby is obsessed with Oprah. She has really? a, like tattooed on her ass and shit. She's <laughs> always like, Oprah is like a national treasure. Like she just like loves her. And I'm like, oh, she really fucking is. is. <laughs> well, 30 Rock, greatest show of all time. Tina Fey is a goddess. Oprah does appear on one of the episodes oh. and it's one of the funniest Aww. ones. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> so 
this protest in 1987 was fucking nuts. I And again, just go look it up because if you look at the Oprah video, they play little clips of what's happening and like watching all of these crazy people. It's like the Dukes of Hazards jerked off into a clan hood. <laughs> so there's a bus of peaceful protesters. They roll up to talk about how horrible the, the discrimination back in 1912 was and they get greeted by rocks and bottles being hurled at them by the same people claiming they want to keep their community civilized. Um, so a group of people known... Oh, never mind. Sorry. I think I did get some things mixed up. But a bunch of white people showed up with guns. You know, like I said, they're throwing things at the um, at the marchers and the sheriff there in 1987. Uh, he was definitely out of his depth. They said that they knew like the second they did not realize how underprepared they were like for this little. It's just a bus ride. They're just going to walk through town. Peaceful protest the racism that happened back in 1912 and you have motherfuckers with guns show up to show how angry they are about things. Um, like how dare you come and like dig up history and it's all the same things you hear. Like, why can't they let go of the past? Blah, blah, blah. But anyway, we have our Confederate flag that we also can't let go of. (laughs) Um, so like the situation gets too hairy. The sheriff has to abandon, the protest not abandon the protest but like tell everyone like you got to get back on the bus you got to go like there was even um some interviews i guess that the papers were doing like while the the city like politicians are trying to say like foresight we're not racist we're very peaceful they're interviewing people there like in the town like how do you feel about the protest and one guy's like they should all wear targets on them as they're coming out of the bus you know shit like that like they're getting death threats for even having this protest it's fucking crazy so okay so anyway so the sheriff has to the demonstration basically gets abandoned so the author of the book blood at the root what i based all of this on um, he was supposed to show up. He was supposed to meet his, his parents and his sister, um, at the protest. They, they are white. They are a white family. They were one of the very few white families like marching with, uh, the demonstrators. Um, and they get started getting screamed at, you know, you guys are white N words. Like, oh you know, we're going to kill you. It's like crazy shit. So when everyone gets on the bus to leave, like, these are all people that don't probably live in Forsyth. And so, like, this guy's family is standing there. Like, everyone knows they were a part of the march. And they're all, like, still screaming at this family. So they actually have to get, like, ushered into a police car for their safety. Because they're just going to get attacked yeah. for the having the audacity to participate oh in this demonstration. Yeah. So, so anyway, they get kind of whisked off to safety. This like crazy demonstrate like of, um, sorry, counter protesters are still there being all crazy and riled up and shit screaming. So the, the author shows up, he thinks he's in the peace March. He has no fucking idea what's going on. He doesn't know the demonstrators have like gone home. Oh yeah. Um, so he's like, he thinks he's like a part of this group. He's like, yeah. And then he's like, and all of a sudden there's a guy with a bullhorn that's like, white power. Oh my gosh. And then he's like, a guy walks by with like a fucking noose draped over his shoulder. And he's like, I got to get the fuck out of here. Oh, I'm in the wrong fucking yep, group. I'm <laughs> not supposed to be here. So anyway, he got the fuck out of there. Okay. So how did everything get so twisted and sideways? Because this happened all the way back in 1912. How is it that people in 1987 are still so crazy about it um i mean the the author talks about growing up there 
and he did say that they use the the n-word like it is nothing and this is back in 1987 so i don't i doubt it's probably the same but um yeah he said uh uh just when people found out he was from atlanta they were like oh did you meet any n-words like how were the n-words like they just could not stop talking about it um i think it's also important to note that marjorie taylor green is from around this area in georgia just for everyone to mark that um so anyway 1912 everyone's minding their own business when suddenly news sweeps across the city about a beautiful young white woman who was viciously attacked by a black man the day before as it goes yeah the young woman by the name of ellie grice john grice had found his wife and again this is just how the story goes no one knows because there's no statement from ellie grice um so john grice has found his wife he calls for help from a neighbor incoming this is a real town name it's called coming um with (laughs) news like this it only took a matter of hours for a posse to form with bloodhounds because oh my god we just heard that a black man violated a white woman so to help with the hunt was sheriff reed um and a man in his second term as sheriff having only recently won the seat with deputy gay loomis uh to battle it out with he um yeah, so anyway, the two battled for Sheriff Reed won, Loomis lost, and I think Reed harbored resentment. It sounded like he felt like the better of the two, like in a very arrogant mm. kind of misogynistic way. Um, so, But Gay Loomis, he he's kind of a tall, lurch-looking motherfucker, <laughs> if like, do you want to visualize him. Um, so word got to the black field hands that a roundup was happening. You know, they like the bloodhounds are fucking coming. Great. So many tried to take over when Reed and Loomis, you know, come riding up on their horses. Uh, over a few days, Reed and Loomis arrest a boy named Tony Howell along with four other men. But Howell stood out because he was the nephew of two of the most respected black residents in town. And he also wasn't from Forsyth. So he was an outsider. So obviously, oh, my God, I bet this outsider did it. Newspapers did not help in the matter when they started reporting things like, if a lynching takes place, Tony Howell will probably be the victim. They're just printing this in the paper. Like, let me just throw out some ideas for people to take. Um, It just seems like shoddy journalism to me. (laughs) So then Grice's father, he rolls into coming to tell everyone the news that Ellie was in critical condition, which had a snowball effect on the town. So soon, like, a crowd is starting to form. Um, People start forming around the jailhouse, knowing that the accused are inside in what one reporter called a determined spirit of greedy vengeance. So... Uh, in the crowd was Grant Smith. He was an educated black preacher that represented the poor uh, black under- underclass of the area. He was well-known and well-respected. One rumor about Grant Smith was that while he was in the crowd, he said out loud, and he's, like, surrounded by white people, um, what a shame it was that there was, like, a fuss being made over one sorry white woman. So within a matter of seconds, Uh-oh. he's being whipped, he's being punched, he's being kicked. Uh, no amount of time was mentioned, but basically the altercation got Reed's and Loomis's attention. So they were able to grab Smith and drag him into the jailhouse uh, where he was treated by a doctor. But while all this was going on, many uh, black congregations were meeting for this annual picnic again they like not the news has not completely totally spread so people are just still going about their day but there's this like big gather meetup you know it's a big barbecue 
Um, so everyone starts to arrive for this barbecue and they're met with the sad news that five people have been arrested for some alleged rape, not to mention Grant Smith was like just got his ass beat in the town square in front of the jailhouse. So some men thought that they might go into town and see what was going on and like what was true. Um, maybe they could, I don't think thought they could work something out, but like, you never know, you know, you go there with some hope. Uh, so some people just kind of casually started to wander down. I don't know how news spread quickly, but like the rumors somehow, I guess some people saw something or knew that like some black people were coming down just to like check out the town square. And suddenly it turns into this rumor that an army of black people are descending upon the town to destroy everyone. Like, that they're furious about about Grant Smith and that they're, like, headed towards the town with a cart full of explosives to, like, kill everyone. Like, they just met at a barbecue and they wanted to, like, come check out <laughs> what was happening. And it turns into, they're going to explode the town. Oh my so, God. yeah, fucking white yeah. people. So now all the white people are freaking the fuck out. All the rumors, uh, you know, about black takeover are obviously yeah. coming true. <laughs> the sky is falling. Um, terrified white people from all over started to arrive in Forsyth. A witness said they came on horseback, on buggies, on automobile, and on foot. Uh, they streamed into town and loitered about the courthouse. Almost every man was packing. Gun dealers had set up tables in town to show their inventory of handguns, oh rifles, shotguns, crates of ammo. Suddenly, it's like just like the town square is yeah. just like set up with guns. Um, so, sorry, there's a cat uh, out. <laughs> just one. But uh, so not knowing what was going like to be there to greet them when they arrived uh the black picnic goers they round the corner and they see all these red flags like oh my god they're like gonna kill yeah. everyone so this like group of black people they get seen but so they just like run and the people in town they're these crazy bastards are chasing them they chase them all the way back to the barbecue where they came from and they're like like, you better get out of here. Like, you have to leave. And everybody was like, you got it. They packed up and they're like, we're out of here. <laughs> so the delicate white men then told uh, the group that Cummings was off limits. Like, you're not allowed to be here ever, I guess. And I'm sure they were all happy to comply because the name is fucking awful. <laughs> like, why would you name your town Cumming? Um Back at the courthouse, the situation had not settled down. Charlie Harris, the mayor, tried to tell everyone to go home to cool off and get some dinner. Then someone in the crowd yelled back, we don't want no dinner, Colonel. We want N-word for dinner. Oh, my God. So, yes. Uh, Harris wondered if things might get a little out of hand. So he phoned his buddy in Atlanta, Governor James um, Mackey Brown, um, just to ask for help. So I guess a law had just passed where like if you ever needed the national guard to come in you had to contact the governor um because there were too many instances of just local mayors sheriffs utilizing the national guard to just literally torment people um so it it had to like yeah. go down a chain of command type thing so he this is like one of the first times where a governor is being called to use the national guard um so he was worried that a lynching was on the horizon um, and he did not want his city to be like any kind of national attention. So the National Guard comes and I guess what's like crazy is they show up in cars, which is not common at the time. Like 
they like zoom in, they grab Tony Howell and zoom out. Um, but it just like kind of throws everyone off because the national guard shows up in a bunch of cars too. Like you don't see too many cars in like a poor town in Georgia in 1912. So everyone's like, what the fuck? Um, so anyway, the troops show up, they take, uh, oh, whoops. I think I skipped something. Um, Oh, yeah, I did say that he was arrested with, like, other dudes. Okay, so the troops show up. They take prisoners to a more secure facility in Atlanta. Um, yeah, for the time being. Unfortunately, that was just the beginning. So eight miles away, something horrible is happening. May Crow, just completely unrelated. An 18-year-old white girl living outside the community with her family has gone missing. And they're, like, a kind of a large, like, poor family. Mm-hmm. So she goes missing. She's not home for hours after her family was expecting her to be in search parties form. So eventually discovered was made of May Crow, who was barely clinging to life with multiple wounds all over her body, um, including a gash across her throat. And she had like an injury on her head. So first Ellie Grice and now May Crow. And, you know, it's all just too much for this little town to take. So naturally the town could only come to one conclusion. It was black men. Uh, the town, operating deeply in conspiracy theory mode, concluded that black rapists had become emboldened with their successful assault and uh, government protections. So these nutjobs felt like it was time to take um, everything into their ignorant, stupid, violent hands. Uh, so near the crossroads where May had been found, swarms of people formed... Um, nearby black residents waited anxiously, knowing exactly how bad things could get, seeing what the trigger-happy white people were about to do next. But while out looking for May Crow, one wealthy businessman in town, he'd found a little hand mirror in the woods. And there's no indication as to how far away the mirror was from the body. <clears throat> um, but, like, I don't think it matters because he's not an officer. Like, he's not a detective. Yeah. But somehow he thinks he's just, like, linked. He's just solved the crime by finding a hand mirror yeah. in the woods. Um, so it turns out the mirror belongs to 17-year-old um, Ernest Knox. The man that found the mirror offered to give Ernest a ride. And, like, I guess he didn't want to go. But he kind of courses him into the car. And then he takes Knox to an isolated location and basically gave the boy a mock lynching and demanding that he confess. So, of course, Ernest Knox confesses because he's like, well, I'm going to die if I don't. Um, So the man got what he wanted. And he took the boy. And I don't know if it was the nearest town um, there. But he took him to Gainesville, which... I don't know how far away that is from Forsyth, but it is like one of the closer, it is like one of the closest towns to Forsyth. Um, so when the papers reported on the confession, they failed to mention the, that the admittance was taken under duress. But I guess like confessions like that taken from black people was like practically expected at the yeah. time. City officials, knowing it could turn into something even uglier, opted to move him somewhere more secure like Atlanta. So like I said, yeah, they snuck him out of vehicles. Um, they raced to Atlanta, I guess, in record time at the gut-wrenching speed of 40 miles per hour because that's what they topped <laughs> yeah. out at. Uh, so this made Reed sad. He wanted to have a guy of his own to arrest. Wait, did I? Yeah, no, I did it right. Okay, sorry. <laughs> um, anyway, so he wanted to have his own guy to arrest. Uh, Reed had heard there was a rumor that a suspect named Big Rob Edwards had been seen with Knox earlier that day, the same day that um, Cray sorry may crow went missing so he and loomis went to check it out when they got there they were surprised to see a posse was already like there like they had figured it out before reed had or something um so they're there 
The individuals actually had their hands on Rob with the intention of lynching him on the spot, but sheriff, the sheriff and Loomis were able to take Rob away and get him to the local jail where they were followed by a growing group of crazed individuals, like thirsty for this dude's blood. So not long after Edwards is jailed, it's thought that around 2000 people showed up in front of the jail, like demanding they let him out. <clears throat> um, so but what Reed did next was pretty fucking bonkers. He left. He up and left Loomis with a massive crowd of angry white people wanting to very obviously murder a black man. Um, Reed knew exactly what he was leaving Loomis with, a nightmare that wasn't his problem anymore. So, like, Reed, this whole, like, weird competitive thing yeah. with the sheriff, like... People think he, like, was harboring some kind of resentment or something. Because, um, like, he was always looking to fuck Loomis yeah. over in some way. Uh, so he he does, like, it's a very calculated move that he leaves Loomis with a nightmare that oh is not God. his problem yeah. anymore. So Reed can look like the good guy, pretending to not know how bad it is outside. And then that way he can also, like, when the crowd obviously is going to overcome, like, Loomis, yeah. he's one cop in like <laughs> yeah. a little jail in a poor town um so yeah he he knows that loomis is gonna get all the blame and he can like act like you know he did everything yeah, he, he could yeah so loomis like to his credit he actually did try to protect big rob edwards he put like a big heavy bar on the door hoping it would hold he tried to beg and reason with the crowd to go home but after of only a few big pushes, like, I think they said it did not take very many pushes to, like, knock this door over. Um, the mob breaks through just fine. And they easily overpower Loomis. Like, it's like a swarm. It's yeah. like fucking like one dude. Yeah. World thousands. War Z. Yeah. So the mob dragged Edwards out. They began to beat him. Soon a noose was placed around his neck and he was dragged through the square. In only a matter of moments, Big Rob Edwards was violently executed. The exact cause of death is unknown. Um, but by the time he was hanged, he was he was for sure dead. And that did not stop the mob from pumping hundreds of rounds of bullets from oh their God. rifles and pistols into his body um, one witness said the corpse was mangled into something hardly resembling human form the crowd shot him until they literally ran out of bullets um, to make it worse rob edwards's wife jane and rob's brother plus a neighbor of theirs they're all arrested for whatever reason in connection to the crow case um, they were also taken to atlanta just just because and uh, so now there are 11 people jailed for, again, with what evidence, we don't yeah. know, but 11 people jailed and one person officially being murdered by a mob. So Sheriff Reed, um, he was able to be interviewed by Atlanta reporters. The headline read graphic story of terror reign. He talked and like, I guess he like was so like fluffed up. Like he was this hero, I, like the way they said he was so fucking arrogant about it. But he talked of the race war that he and his little buddies started. But um, he whined that white people were sleeping with one eye open. They're just so afraid of a black oh uprising. Um, just flat fucking lied about not being there and leaving Loomis to handle the mob all by himself. Like, he had the nerve to say that he had done everything in his power to stop the mob. Like, not even giving Loomis no credit, yeah. taking whatever he could for himself. So... Uh, a little bit of time passes and May Crow finally succumbs to the injuries. Um, on the day of her funeral, 
is when things really kind of speed up for the residents in Forsyth. Uh, when she was finally lowered into the ground, people felt like it was their job to like hurt everyone they could that they thought was a possible su- suspect. So this is when the night riding starts. Uh, they just start their campaign of terror. They had satchels packed with bullets, guns, and dynamite in an effort to drive every black person out of Forsyth as well as neighboring cities of the county. So the group... The groups targeted first were cotton pickers, sharecroppers, and small landowners. A lot of those people fled knowing just, like, how nuts night riders mm-hmm. were. Um, Shiloh Baptist, Backband Church, Stony Point. These are just a few of the names of the churches burnt by night riders. Um, these churches were on land owned by black people, of which there are still records in, like, some old boxes, I guess. But every black church in Forsyth County was turned to ash mm. um, on Georgian soil. So the papers were pushing these sensationalized stories of Macro's murder. Again, all they did was find, like, her in the woods. And yeah. it's horrible, and her head was bashed in. But, like, that's really all they know. Yeah. Um, so they just, like I said, they just start making shit up. They made wild claims of Ernest Knox, who, like, yes, technically he had confessed to Crow. But, like, oh, he... uh you know, yeah, he confessed to Crow, he beat her mercilessly, and then he threw her over a cliff. It's like, I don't know where this cliff is. Um, Other papers also wanted to delight in the joy of spreading falsehoods, so they started making their own shit up, too. One of the lies was that two white women uh, had died violently. Oh, my God. Ellie Grice is not dead. yeah. (laughs) She's not dead. In fact... The bitch that this all started over, she's fucking fine. She's chilling. Like, she's just living her life and keeping a low profile. I don't know. I'm like, but it may be in the book. I didn't finish the book. I read as much as I could. It could be in the book that they get into her making that claim or how this claim even came about. But it doesn't sound like it's anything that happened. Um, Or... Because this is like a, a a real thing that happened in the South where if there was an actual relationship between a white woman and a black man, oh. all she has to do is claim that she was raped. Yeah. And then like she's off scot-free. Yeah. She looks like the victim. And yeah. yeah. So um, that could also have been a possibility. So anyway, May Crow really is dead, though. She really was yeah beaten in the woods uh so may crow's parents they were in favor of burning out all the black people um and never spoke out against the night writing so after the funeral and into the evening it's they said all hell broke loose the night was filled with gunfire and burning cabins and churches some white neighbors weren't a part of the of the writing and they genuinely did care for like their black neighbors george jordan a neighbor um went to check on his black neighbors and found them hiding in the woods their home had been shot so full of bullets uh, that the tables and chairs didn't have any legs to, left to stand oh on. Like everything was oh collapsed gosh. in the house. Uh, the family left and obviously like never went back. So this was not a unique story. Every night for many days, gunshots could be heard all throughout the night. Um, let's see. Sorry. I put man. I don't think I wrote this right. <laughs> I put man of the black people. That's not it. <laughs> I don't know what I meant. I don't know. He's so, man of the black people. Yeah. So anyway, something happened. Uh, what the fuck was I writing? <laughs> anyway, okay. So men, I what the fuck was I saying? <laughs> this is going to make me crazy. Um, 
Anyway, the many white of? people. Was it many? Of? I don't fucking okay. know. Many of the black people to be chased <laughs> out probably knew the faces of their aggressors. Thank you so much. <laughs> Fuck. I was like, why did I write man of the black people? <laughs> many of the black people being chased out. Got it. Okay. Because the white men involved were all known, like active members of the community, like they were not hiding their faces. They were doing this very openly. Um, but for the decades that followed, the residents of Forsyth blames, blamed um, outsiders for all the problems going on. They even tried to blame the KKK, saying they were hooded. But that really didn't start until about 1915 when like the birth of a nation came out and that like suddenly became the official like yeah. where. So anyway, um. And then, like, just to, like, show that there's a pattern, the founding of Forsyth is even darker. They'd The people of Forsyth only retained that land that they had because of the Indian Removal Act signed by Andrew Jackson. So only through chasing out roughly 16,000 natives in and around that area, um, it just seemed like, I don't know, chasing out minorities is in their blood. So the last slave, this is crazy, the last slave census before emancipation showed that Forsyth was home to 890 slaves with 200 families owning them. Uh, but Mayor Charlie Harris didn't want the country to look at Forsyth as this like lawless place where, oh, we're just a bunch of old slave owners that can't get over it. Because um, he wanted the town to have a train come through Forsyth. I guess the town kept getting skipped for like places to stop but like that means your town isn't going to grow if you can't oh. have access out um so he's like he's been trying to get trains to come and like now this crazy story is happening these women are potentially you know being murdered and uh a lynching has just happened like it's it's oh not gosh, looking good yeah. for forsyth um so he's nervous like their town's gonna dry up now or something because they just chased away like any per potential business like future dealings um so, yeah, he felt like if men were going to be executed for these crimes, it needed to be done through a court of law. It needed to be state and it needed to be on state sanctioned gallows. So but the trial led to another problem. No lawyers wanted to represent the black defendants because there were only white lawyers in Georgia at the time. So um, eventually they did find some people to represent them. But it's like definitely just a garbage trial um, to re prevent any more upset. The mayor called the National Guard again to help maintain order like they just know it's not going to be good, especially during the transportation of the prisoners. So the sad fact of the case, though, is that that the prisoners had to be found guilty. The town was never going to accept any other way. Like it had to be a guilty verdict. Um, like they're sort of like, they understand they need to cater to the crowd because like the crowd will lose their fucking shit if they like don't get what they want. So it's, it's totally just like uh, the mob made the decision. You know what I mean? So anyway, uh, Oh, okay. So I'm not sure what they threatened her with, but Jane, Big Rob's wife, who was most definitely traumatized from everything that's just happened to her husband, she testifies. And this is like so sad because I, I don't know what, like there's no specifics about how they convinced her to say this mm -hmm. or if they did things to her or threatened her with things. But she testifies that in the early evening, Knox had knocked May Crow unconscious, dragged her body into the woods, 
came back to grab Big Rob, her brother Oscar, Daniels, and her, Jane, um, and took them back to May Crow. So according to Jane, she was the, she was told she had to hold the lantern or, th- or they would kill her so that the men could, like, ravage her body so that they could, like, rape her unconscious body. Yeah. Obviously, this never happened, yeah. but she, somehow they've convinced her to say this yeah. in law or in the courts, and I like, there's well, just no records about how yeah. or what they said to get her to say that anyway. So, of course, that did not happen. Um, uh, in a one-day court trial, the jury deliberated for 19 minutes, and they found Knox and Daniel guilty um, for the death of May Crow. And then Tony Howell, the guy that was being accused for raping Ellie Grice or attacking her, um, there's no witnesses that can be summoned, and Grice couldn't be bothered to show up for the trial either. And this is like a month after. Yeah. Um, so they have to postpone his trial for another day. I did not get into whether Howell ever got off officially. I think he did because mm-hmm. I think – there was just nothing to yeah. prove that anything had even happened. And the woman claiming that it had happened was never showed yeah, up. So, yeah. Like... <laughs> um, so after the trials are over, word started to spread about the hatred of black people in Forsyth and the horrible night writing. Um, like, like other cities are now starting to hear about like these, cause you have other towns like Gainesville, the one that was closest to Forsyth. Suddenly there's just like floods of black people coming in talking about like what's happening, what's going on there. So like slowly news is starting to spread about the crazy shit going on in Forsyth. Yeah. Um, so, and like, uh, you know, a woman recalls like she, she was in her eighties, you know, not that long ago talking about what her father had gone through talking about like, they would watch families abandon like everything they owned, food, blankets, clothes, like everything. Um, and then like the white people would come by and just burn their homes. Like they would take their furniture out and burn it if they wanted to preserve the home. Like, like cra- I don't know. To me, that's like wild. Is that yeah, wild to you? I think it is. To, like, it's weird. It, to burn all of their shit. Like, don't you dare like, come for back. No fucking reason. Yeah. It's. I mean. Well, I mean. Yeah. Reason, obviously, but... a horrible like yeah, message just to like add it like on top. Like. Yeah, that's some pretty. Yeah. That's hatred, man. That's horrible. So. Yeah. I'm so glad I was not alive then. Dude, I'm so happy to be alive in 2023. Yeah. <laughs> I tell you. Um. So. Oh. And, and like, you know, now that like everybody's starting to know, papers are starting to report on what's going on there. Um, there were federal like orders for federal investigations into the night writing, but I guess George's courtrooms are all filled with moonshiners in the fall of 1912, because I guess, um, Georgia was a rare state that pushed for prohibition earlier than everybody else. So Georgia started their prohibition early and that's what they're focusing all their arrests on. So there's no time for silly night riders. We have to get these guys that are selling illegal alcohol out of <laughs> bottles. So, or mason jars. But, uh, so yeah, Georgia just seems like a really shit place <laughs> to live. Um, a few years later in 1915, W.E.B. Du Bois um, sent someone from the NAACP to investigate the town of Cumming on his own. He just wanted to see, like, what can we find? Um, his investigator found that white people not only had chased them out, um, all the black residents, 
but had taken complete financial advantage of a very dis- desperate situation that they had all started. So white people were going by the homes of black people and offering them very low prices for their land and for their livestock. So like if a cow goes for $25 back then, it's going for four or five bucks. Mm-hmm. Like, because they know like the alternative is to get nothing yeah. is to get run out and all your shit burned. Or I guess I just sell you for pennies on the dollar, yeah. like the value of my shit. Um, and then like, I don't know, people were sending warning letters and stuff. Like you had kids that were figuring out like, oh, it's okay to go terrorize black people. Like they're, you know, I guess there was a story of like two kids, like blowing up a couple sticks of fucking dynamite, like under a black person's home, like crazy shit. So anyway, sorry. Okay. Back to the, sadly the executions of, uh, Knox and Daniels. So the court ordered they were supposed to be done in private. Um, but Sheriff Reed, he has other plans. Um, so he's walking by, he sees a sloped field that basically kind of is like a little amphitheater effect. And he thinks, well, that's very nice. And he decides the gallows are going to be set up at this little amphitheater looking thing. Um, you know, it's like beautiful rolling hills. Oh my God. Yeah. So again it's court ordered by the judge like they no one can see this like it's probably going to incite some kind of a riot it's going to get violent um so he's like okay so the court orders that a large fence be built to like not be able to see anything so they're like okay we build a fence so they build this fence and there's only one problem is that if people figure out like oh all we have to do is knock down this fence and then we can all see this awesome public execution um you know, we get what we want. And they did figure that out. They knocked the fence over and then they burned it. They burned all oh the lumber. God. So the judge is pissed. He's like, well, you're supposed, this has to be private. Um, and like, so, oh yeah. So like the judges, the lawyers and the lawmakers, they all believe that Reed is like, they know he's doing this on yeah. purpose. Like, obviously like they're, they've lost all faith in him. Like any credibility he had is just like nothing. <clears throat> so Anyway, uh, on October 25th, 1912. Oh, and like, sorry. So one more thing. They said they were, he like was ordered by the judge to build the fence. Like you need to rebuild it. And he was saying, well, we can't find lumber. And then when like people came to like court ordered, people came to like build the fence, get it, make sure it was built. Um, no one in the town would sell them lumber. They were like, no, we're out. Yeah. So they literally like could not. Sorry, I need to drink water. Okay. So on October 25th, 1912, Knox and Daniels uh, were executed by hanging for the entire town of coming and surrounding areas to see. It's And, like, it was so creepy. They said it was like a – there was, like, a festive mood. Like, it oh was, like, parents holding kids. Yeah. And it was almost like people laying out blankets. Like, it was just creepy. Weird, yeah. Um. So anyway, so everybody comes. They watch these poor, innocent boys die and – um, after they had been pronounced dead and laid out, it was so, okay. It was the presence of the national guard that kept the townsfolk from like cutting up, you know, bits of the boys' bodies and yeah. shit. Like, you know how they did, like you've told yeah, stories too. Yeah, like they keep it as souvenirs and shit. Yeah. Like from lobbing off pit bits of finger and yeah. shit and toes. So, um, the national guard keeps everybody like, no, you can't do that. Um, but then Reed and Loomis come by and they like cut down chunks of rope from the gallows and start handing it out to oh kids gosh. like as little souvenirs like oh here you go 
So just so fucking creepy. Um, in the end, nothing ever happened. And no Night Riders were ever arrested for anything, of course. Um, no, uh, I, from what I've read, no, there were there was never any, um, uh, what do you call it, reparations or anything. Mm. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty shitty. Uh, I guess the white residents in Forsyth, some of them are still harbor those, like, feelings of, like, no, you don't understand, like there were black people that did crimes and they paid yeah. for them, but like without knowing the whole story yeah. and it's like, just, just learn the story and you might think differently yeah. about it. So, but anyway, Marjorie Taylor green is from that area. And I just feel like I should mention that again. Um, <laughs> she's a piece of shit. So, uh, that was Forsyth, Georgia. That's creepy. Oh yeah. It's crazy how when I hear these stories, it's like, I feel like we've heard it like a thousand times. It's true. Yeah. It does shock me how many of these stories there are. And to know that like, it's not even scratching the surface. So I don't know. It's, I feel like it's kind of changed my thinking quite a bit. Yeah. Looking this stuff up. Definitely. Yeah. I'm like, oh my gosh. Yeah. How could I have been so blind to like what's very obviously been there? So Yeah. Yeah. And then oh, that 70 years later, they're still oh, fucking 75 fucking the yeah. 75th anniversary. And they're <laughs> still fuck? screaming and word go home. Oh, you oh got to watch that Oprah video, oh. dude. Oh, it's I will. crazy. I'm gonna look it up <laughs> uh, just that dude, that dude in that denim suit. <laughs> I cannot get over his like pug face, yeah. like jowly fucking oh. fatty cheeks bouncing up and down and he's he's complaining about black people it just uh yeah, yeah. so yikes all right all right well <sighs> yep it's time to wrap it up man farewell and good praise oprah praise all hail our <laughs> queen oprah goodbye <laughs>